And now please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes to what is one of the better known passages in all of scripture and probably the best known passage from Ecclesiastes. Chapter three, and we'll consider verses one through eight. used the first four verses of this passage as the call to worship at Vicki's funeral yesterday for obvious reasons, but we're going to consider verses one through eight. Ecclesiastes three, one through eight. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that you have appointed times for things. And as we come to this well-known passage that has been read and taught and preached countless times throughout the history of your covenant people. Lord, we ask you to give us understanding and edify us as we reflect on it together. Show us what you'd have us learn from it, please. And this we humbly ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As, uh, as much as two weeks ago, there's already a local radio station playing Christmas music. I could hardly believe it. I mean, it was a week, two weeks maybe before Thanksgiving. There's at least one radio station in the area that's gone wall-to-wall Christmas, 24-7, playing Christmas music. And it's not even December yet. Uh, It's hard to believe. But um, from the time of year we associate with Christmas comes this expression that we've grown to use more broadly the expression, tis the season. Because uh, certainly with Christmas, but also with other times of year or times of life, uh, there are certain activities and events that we associate with those times, seasons, and events. We we prayed about one of them. Uh, As I was talking with one of the brothers about what his plans for Thanksgiving were, he mentioned he he was going up to, driving out of state to visit some family, and he mentioned his plan, his travel plan, because he's going to try to 
avoid the heavier traffic days. So he's leaving on Tuesday, I think, and then coming back Friday uh, because the freeways, the interstates are just going to be packed with travelers. Tis the season, right? Thanksgiving brings holiday travel. Well, when we were looking at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that we saw, one of the things that we brought out of the text is that our lives, all of our lives and, and all of our work are mingled with sorrows and with vexation. It's unavoidable. We go about our day-to-day lives and we do our day-to-day work and there's always going to be associated with those things, uh, trials and difficulties. But the flip side of that is, here in a fallen world, our lives and our work are also mingled with and blessed by good things from God every single day. Things that he gives to us to enjoy. Things that we should receive as gifts from him. And all those things, the gifts and the blessings and the joys, as well as the sorrows and the vexations, all those things, including their times and seasons, in other words, when they come to us, and how long they last, those are all in God's hands. He is Lord. And our text this evening features pairs of events or actions that are common to human life. Some of these things, uh, if you examine them, some of them are things that are obviously outside of our control. Things that we don't have any say in, no power over. But then there are other things that are well within man's volition and power. But whether they're outside our control completely or whether they're things that we certainly have a certain hand in, they're all entirely in God's sovereign hands. Think what this text reminds us of and teaches us is the important lesson that Jesus Christ is Lord of times and seasons. Jesus Christ is Lord of times and seasons, including all the times and seasons of your life and mine. Many, many sermons have been preached on this passage, so if, if I'm not able really to, to nail the, the central meaning of this text, I apologize. I, I didn't entertain any notion that I'd be able to do that very well, but I do want to bring out a few things from it for you, I hope. And um, I wrestled so much with this text. That's why there's no, uh, there's no, nothing's filled in in the outline in your bulletin, because by the time Jeff had to go to print with the bulletin, I just had no idea, I'll be honest. Um, but here's my outline, and, and here's what I want to, to bring to you from this text. Number one uh, is going to involve surveying human and divine activity. And number two will be considering the one greater than Solomon. And number three, discerning the times and seasons. So first of all, surveying human and divine activity. That's what these verses do. They're a survey. And uh, we might ask, well, what's this list really all about? I want you to notice, uh, because, uh, because this passage is so familiar, and because the context maybe is a little bit different than, than 
places we encounter a certain phrase elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, I want you to notice that that phrase under heaven occurs here. We see it throughout Ecclesiastes, but maybe because of the familiarity of these particular verses, we, we forget that, oh, there it is again, under heaven. And it's significant that those words appear here. The, the idea of being under heaven or under the sun not that I think there's, there's very much distinction between those two terms. Heaven under heaven may have a little bit more Godward reference or, or infer, inference or implication, whereas under the sun just means everything on earth. But since that phrase appears here, it's operative just as in the rest of Ecclesiastes. And what it's telling us is that the appointed times for everything, uh, they take place in this fallen world. And they're appointed by God. We have a series of contrasting pairs in this text. And they show the scope of God's sovereignty. They show just how broad and how comprehensive, really exhaustive in the, in the all-inclusive sense God's sovereignty is. This passage does speak about things that, that we do, that mankind does. But it's the passage is about what God does as much as it, as it is about what people do. And one thing that we need to be clear on right from the beginning is when the text says there's a time for this and a time for that, it's not saying that there are times in which any of these things or all of these things may lawfully be done. So it's not saying it's okay, go ahead and hate sometimes, there's a time for that. No, that's not the point. Um, and it's not encouraging killing or saying that, that, that sometimes it's okay to do that. What it speaks of is fixed times when God's providence brings on this thing or that thing. So again, in our prayer, uh, we prayed about war that's taking place. And all those tragic and terrible things are happening in some parts of the world. They're not outside of God's control. And in some mysterious way, God has ordained these things because in God's providence, there is a time for war and there's a time for peace. The first pair of activities in the list that we see at the beginning of verse two, time to be born and a time to die. Life begins, life ends. Actually, the, uh, the Hebrew there uh, would be more accurately trained, uh, translated um, a time to give birth and a time to die. So it's not, I mean, I guess in a sense it's talking about the beginning of our lives and the end of our lives. But in terms of human activity, what it's really saying is there's a time to give birth. There's time for a new generation to rise up as babies are born, as mothers give birth to their offspring. And then there's a time for life to end. Both have an appointed time. It's important for us to remember that. We, we talk about uh, the, the complete uh, absence of any control on our part about when we're born. And we, we, we make that observation when we discuss the theological concept of being born again because just as you and I had no say whatsoever about the day of our biological birth 
God is completely sovereign. It's, a, it's entirely a work of the Holy Spirit that we're born again. So the first birth and the second birth are entirely the work of God. God appoints the day of birth. We see that very clearly in the, uh, in the situation with Isaac. You remember uh, Abraham and Sarah were without a child. and uh, In Genesis 18, 14, God said to uh, Abraham, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Isaac was born, and he was born at the time appointed by God. In fact, he was, he was born not a day early and not a day late. He was born exactly when God ordained that he would be born. God appoints the moment of conception, even, and the day of birth, and, of course, he appoints the day of death, too. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's speaking of each of us individually. Each one of us has an appointment with death, and it has been ordained by God. You could put it on the calendar if you knew what it was. He precisely ordains the date of our birth, the time of our birth, the season of it, and the date of our death. Philip Ryken put it this way, both the cradle and the grave follow God's timetable. And I would say God ordains the time of conception as well as the time of birth, the time of death, and everything in between and all the steps that lead from one to the next, from the first to the last. Every event, great and small, connecting the time of birth to the time of death is ordained by God. And we can continue on down this list and we'll see in some cases uh, things that uh, the, the seasons of which are pretty evident to us because we can't predict time of our death and we don't know when uh, someone may die and there's certain other things that we just don't know when might happen or might not happen. But there are certain things that are pretty evident to us, such as what we see at the second part of verse 2. The time, there's a time to plant. And you know, back in Genesis, after the flood, and God said, as long as the earth endures, uh, summer and winter, seed time and harvest, day and night, heat and cold shall not cease. Uh, we've got a pretty good idea when the season for planting is. You know, in the spring, when the weather's starting to get warmer, we break up the soil, we plant our crops. Those of you who've lived on a farm or been in a community where there were lots of farms, you know that quite well. <clears throat> Notice, though, that uh, it doesn't say there's a time to plant and a time to harvest. The corresponding event or the corresponding activity isn't harvest there, but rooting up. And I think with that and with a couple of other pairs in this list, what we're going to see is a, is a contrast between the patient labor that's involved in something that's productive as opposed to uh, the quick work that's often involved when it comes to destruction. You can plant your crops, the crops can grow, they can bear fruit, and then you can harvest the fruit. But then the... the Uprooting of the plant is, a, is an altogether different activity. A more uh, 
final one. <clears throat> In the same way, look at uh, verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. So with the idea of to kill, we were talking about destruction and that kind of work often can be done very quickly. How long does it take to kill a person? As opposed to a time to heal, which takes patience and care. Those of you who have worked in the medical industry, you know the time and the effort and the patience that's required to help nurse someone back to health. In the same way, uh, break down. Time to break down and a time to build up. You want to learn that lesson very quickly? Volunteer for the nursery. And watch how long it takes for kids to build stuff with blocks. And you can build a neat little thing or put together some really cool structure with Legos. But then how long does it take to break it apart or knock the blocks down? It happens like that, doesn't it? So breaking down is quick. It's a momentary thing. Building up takes time. It takes effort. And so at this point, I want to make an observation. I guess you could think of it maybe as an application, an application just pertaining to understanding or knowledge. Things that are good and worthwhile take time and effort, generally speaking. Things that are good and worthwhile take time and effort. Breaking down, plucking up, killing, those can all be done in uh, quick work. Planting, healing, building, those take time. Those call for patience. They require effort. Look at verse 4 with me. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. You see the contrasts in human emotion. Sometimes we're sad and we cry. Sometimes we're joyful and we cry. But in contrast, there are times when we're uh, happy and we laugh. But then in the second half of that verse, you see an intensification of both of those polar opposites. You've got weeping versus laughing, and then <clears throat> a more intense kind of weeping is, is what a lot of our families are going through, what our sister Lois is experiencing, what, uh, what Linda, her brother, are experiencing, what Amy and Megan are experiencing. They're not merely weeping. They're mourning. There's a deeper sorrow there. And you see the same on the opposite end of the spectrum. You can laugh when you're happy or when you hear a funny joke, but there's a greater, more intense joy that can sometimes find expression in dancing. Dancing expresses joy. Think about when David was king and they finally brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And there's such celebration. And the text says David danced with all of his might before the Lord because he was so joyful that the Ark was coming back to where it belonged. Or what did the people of Israel do after the Lord had brought them as on dry ground through the Red Sea? And then the Red Sea closed on the Egyptian army and killed them all. And God had delivered his people. They danced. They sang the song of Moses. 
And I would say that that you know, escalation from uh, weeping, laughing and weeping, mourning and dancing, it goes even deeper in a certain sense in verse 7. Look at the beginning of verse 7. A time to tear and a time to sow. The way people in the ancient world, particularly or including ancient Israel, would express deep mourning, deep grief, and profound sorrow is by tearing their garments. You've read about that in Scripture. So there's a time to tear and to express that kind of profound mourning. But then when the time of mourning is over, you've got to sew your garments back up. And there's a time to do that. Or to equate sewing with joy. We could say, you know, at a really, really wonderfully joyful time in life, such as preparing for a wedding, and you sew a wedding garment together, or sew some other festive garment to wear for a really special occasion. There's times for both. There's a time to tear, a time to sew. And they're all under God's control all under God's sovereignty. We go on to see uh, a time to, in verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose. And I think that's parallel to the second half of the verse, a time to keep and a time to cast away. There are times for both of those things. There's a time to seek. Uh, the word that's translated in your Bibles, uh, your ESV Bible anyway, is, is lose. Um, it's... Uh, it's more than just, oops, I lost something. It, it, has, it carries with it the nuance of, of, a, of a deliberate um, casting away. It implies intent, in other words. Uh, so to lose uh, the way this word in the Hebrew should be understood means to sort of just to let go of, or maybe to quit seeking, to give up as lost, or perhaps to uh, uh, just to get rid of. And so you see the parallel in the second part of the verse, a time to... Um, keep and a time to cast away sort of like when you're cleaning house and you're going through the closet through all this stuff that's been sitting in there for how many years and maybe you and your spouse are saying well what do we do with this and the thing about the way God puts married couples together usually is that there's always one cup one person in the couple who really likes to hang on to stuff and the other person just wants to you know minimalize and get rid of everything and so there's always the debate about what well, do we do, keep it or get rid of it and it says there's a time to keep and a time to cast away. There's a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. And that one's always challenging to know. I think that's partly why the New Testament in particular cautions us so, um, so strongly to be swift to hear but slow to speak. There is a time to keep silence and there is a time to speak. The thing is our flesh, oftentimes, whether it be for cowardice or other reasons, our flesh is inclined to keep silence a lot of the time when it's actually time to speak. In the same way, we're often prone to run our mouths when silence would be more fitting. I'm not going to get to every one of these pairs, but look with me at verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. 
This is not a peace anthem as some bands in the 60s uh, tried to make it. It's saying that uh, it's just a reminder to us as, as God's children, as God's people, that in the world there's gonna be love and there's also gonna be hate. You're gonna see both. In the world there may be times of peace, but there will also obviously be times of war and they all come under the sovereign control of God. Now we have a problem with that sometimes. And you may know people who really wrestle with that. How can God be good if he allows X, Y, and Z? If God really commanded the Israelites to go into Canaan and kill all the people in there, then God is evil, so he can't have said that. That's the way people reason sometimes. It's wrong. But these are the issues that people struggle with. The, the issues that they wrestle with. And we're being assured here, there is a time for war as well as a time for peace. Our flesh doesn't like it. Our unbelieving neighbors don't like it. Uh, Philip Ryken again wrote, some people would prefer a one-dimensional deity. They like to think of God as giving life but not appointing the time of death. They would rather see God as planting and building than uprooting and tearing down. But God is not either or, he is both and, depending on what time it is. To everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And Christ Jesus is the Lord of times and seasons. Speaking of Christ Jesus, our second point is to consider the one greater than Solomon. Scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus. His ministry was very popular. He was gaining followers, and the scribes and Pharisees didn't like it. And so they kept challenging him, trying to catch him in something that he said. And on one occasion, they came to Jesus and they demanded a sign. They said, teacher, we want you to show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus rebuked them. He said, you're not going to receive a sign. And they came demanding one. And these are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. They said, give us a sign. He just said, no. And actually, you know the text well enough probably to know that he said, I'm not going to give you a sign. You're not going to receive a sign except the sign of Jonah. And we don't have time to unpack that. But after Jesus told the people, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to get a sign. They were demanding a sign from heaven. In other words, they wanted the heavens to open. They wanted to hear the voice of God. Or they wanted some experience like the, the Israelites had at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's what they were demanding of Jesus. And Jesus said, a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign. But he went on to rebuke that whole generation for their wickedness. And he spoke about the city of Nineveh. He said, the Ninevites repented when Jonah preached to them. And who were the Ninevites? The Ninevites were a wicked pagan city. The capital, what would go on to become the capital city of the whole Assyrian empire. And the Assyrians were famous for their brutality, for the immorality. And yet a Jewish prophet shows up in Nineveh and preaches and they all repent. 
And Jesus said to the people of his generation, the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, and there's something greater than Jonah here. He said, the queen of the south traveled this tremendous distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She was a foreigner. That's part of the point, part of the jab that Jesus is making to the scribes and Pharisees at this point. This foreign queen traveled all this distance because she wanted to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus says, one something greater than Solomon is here. And that was a rebuke to his own people because Jesus Christ is the something greater than Solomon. And listen to what he says. Listen to the things that he does. He is the Lord of times and seasons. He appointed the day of your birth. He appointed the day that you will die. We saw in our text here from Ecclesiastes that there's a time to pluck up Jesus in Matthew 15, 13 said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up, plucked up. So every human being that's ever walked the face of the earth, all of us, we're like so many plants, some of whom have been planted by God, some of whom whom have not. And Jesus says, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. That time is coming, and that time is also set by Jesus. There's a time to kill, and there's a time to heal. Jesus is the healer of souls. What does he do with a broken reed? Does he say, oh, that's useless, snap it in half and cast it away? No, he won't break a bruised reed. What does he do with a little candle that's just barely flickering? the wick that's smoldering. Does he just snuff it? No. He won't do that. He fans it into flame. And he will turn all our sorrow into joy. He will turn all our mourning into dancing. When will he do that? At the appointed time. This text is a survey of all activity under heaven. And this text also points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who does all things well. Christ is at work in the world. He's working all things together according to his wise and holy purposes. I say these verses are about what man does, but they're also about what God does. Ultimately, they're about what Jesus does and is doing and will do. Jesus Christ is the Lord of times and seasons. He's the one greater than Solomon. But then finally, we're told that there is for everything a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so it's incumbent upon you and me that we discern the times and the seasons. It reminds me of another rebuke that Jesus gave to the Pharisees. And I'm going to read this one from uh, 
the New American Standard Version, uh, the ESV uses the word interpret in a certain place. I like the way the New American Standard translates it because it uses this word discern. Listen to it. Matthew 16, 1 through 3. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. There they go again. But he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? There's a season for everything, a time for every matter under heaven, and we ought to be able to discern certain times and seasons. Some we can't know. You understand that. But there's some we can. There are some that we need to be able to discern. And the rebuke that Jesus aimed at the Pharisees in that passage is that they were adept at discerning earthly things, but they are incapable of discerning spiritual things. This was a general fault of people in Jesus' day, and it's a general fault of people in our day as well. Here's another thing about discerning seasons. Verse 4 says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Jesus used those activities, uh, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, to illustrate the spiritual deadness of his own people. He did that in Matthew 11. Why don't you turn there with me, please? Matthew chapter 11 Because people came with a rebuke for Jesus and he turned right back around and called them out. Matthew 11, verses 16 through 19, the Lord said, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And then he explains, for John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The point here is the people's failure to discern the times and to act accordingly. If that, the meaning of that passage doesn't just jump out at you, it's like Jesus is saying that John the Baptist, it's as if John came and he was playing a dirge and he was sorrowfully, mournfully calling people to repent. And yet many of the people wouldn't repent. Then along comes Jesus. And Jesus sang a joyful song of redeeming grace. He came to preach good news and people wouldn't dance. 
They wouldn't mourn for John, they wouldn't dance for Jesus. Or you can consider it the, the, the other way around, and I know that the, the way that parable that Jesus told can, could be interpreted in either way. So here's the alternate take on it. It's as if John came and he's preaching repentance and the people are saying, hey, John, lighten up. Take a break, man. Tone it down a little. Don't be so harsh and severe. And then along comes Jesus with the joyful news of the gospel and they disapproved of his celebratory new covenant joy and didn't want to dance with him. The sum of the whole thing is if we want to be spiritually wise, we have to be able to discern the times. And so then the question is, well, what time is it now? What is this season? Well, I leave with you the words of the prophets, which were quoted by the Apostle Paul. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What time is it, my friends, my brothers and sisters? The time is to seek the Lord. It is time to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, Isaiah said in chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. This is the season. This is the time where he may be found. Seek him. Repent of your sins. Turn to the Lord. Trust in Christ for salvation. If you want to discern the times, know that today is the acceptable day. You don't know what a day may bring, but Jesus does. He ordained everything that each day brings. So trust in him. Walk with him. Think about what we heard this morning in Pastor Mark's sermon. Present yourself to him, to Christ the Lord, every day as a living sacrifice. Because a time is coming when the ungodly are going to be rooted up. Don't be among them. Jesus Christ is the Lord of times and seasons. In that great hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, it says he's the potentate of time. What an awesome title. What a lofty title. He is the Lord of times and seasons, and right now he is giving sinners opportunity to repent and obey the gospel. Don't pass up that season. Well, that brings us to the Lord's Supper. Because in the fullness of time, at just the right time, in the correct and proper and perfect season, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, Why? To redeem those who were under the law. That's why he came. He came to live the perfect life for us that we could never live, we could not have ever done. And he came to shed his blood for his body to be broken so that he could be an atoning sacrifice for us. He came at just the right time, the time ordained from eternity past. So as we prepare to come the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Let's 